0: Half the congregation just left. (laughs) No, not an amen. One day they'll all be adults like us and they'll have kids and hopefully I'll still be alive and here to watch that. Yes, Acts chapter 20, we're going to begin at verse 2. Last week we closed out chapter 19 and began to cross over into 20. We looked at the, last week we looked at the riot in Ephesus, Paul's encouragement to the Ephesians, his departure and his return to and through Macedonia where he visited the churches, encouraged them. After Macedonia he embarked on a, and this is what we'll begin to look at, after Macedonia he embarked on a four month, maybe three and a half, four month journey where he visited the churches of Corinth and Trous. And met with the Ephesian elders at a place called Miletus. That's what we'll be focused on today. I'd like to pray one more time and then we can get to work. Amen? Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. That we might be able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, follow this narrative. And be trained in all righteousness through the things that took place here. Through the truth that this text includes, contains, conform us to the image of Christ through your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit today, Lord. Those who are in Christ desire to be made different every time they come to church as they hear the word. They want to become more like Jesus, and we pray that that would happen, Lord. We pray that you would sanctify us, and maybe there might be one or two here, or some, many, who have yet to come to know you in a saving way, and they're pondering what that might mean. Lord, I pray that you would make that clear today. May today be the day of salvation for some. We give the time to you. May it honor and glorify you. May you be blessed by the proclamation of your word, by our attentiveness, by our notes, and by our love for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all ready? Two and three, actually, we'll begin with. Two and three. This is a, an interesting section. It really um, is pretty simple. It's just kind of movement. And, uh, and of course, when I started to look at it and read it, I thought, oh, Lord, have mercy. How am I going to fill any amount of time with anything here without just reading and, and, and that be it? Because it doesn't look like there's a lot going on. And once I began to say those things to the Lord, the Lord said, so you're calling my word Plain. And I said, that's not the actual translation of what I was saying. I said, no, I love it, you know, and whatever. And by the end of the week, I, I couldn't stop writing. It was like, wow, his word is so rich, and, and he packs things into it. If we're slow enough about how we look at the word and read it and study it, if we take our time, he will reveal things to us. And so I was encouraged this week. Two and three, when he, Paul, had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he uh, and uh, pardon me made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. After leaving Ephesus, Paul went throughout Macedonia, encouraging the believers. He then traveled to Greece, or uh, what Luke has referred to as Achaia. Greece and Achaia are essentially the same thing. The region is called Achaia. While in Achaia, or Greece, Paul remained at Corinth for three months. That city that he had planted a church in uh, just before that, sometime before that. At roughly the same time that these things were playing out, he actually wrote three of his epistles. He wrote 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. He wrote 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus for three years. He wrote 2 Corinthians while he was in Macedonia, traveling throughout the churches, encouraging them. And uh, and then he wrote Romans while he was in Corinth. In all three letters, he he wrote about the purpose of this three-and-a-half, four-month journey or trip, which was to basically raise an offering for the impoverished believers at Jerusalem, the Christians that that lived in Jerusalem, those original, those OG, those original Christians and those who were added to the body there. You know, Jerusalem had a pretty significant church of several thousand people. And they were impoverished. But Paul recorded, really, the purpose for this trip, this four-month journey, in those three letters. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, he wrote, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the Church of Galatia, churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there may be no, uh, no collecting when I come. Have it ready, he says. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry out your gift or to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So to the Corinthians, he says, please put together a gift for these impoverished Christians and I'll try to swing through and pick it up or I'll have it delivered or something of that nature. In 2 Corinthians, Paul actually devoted two whole chapters to the collection. Chapters 8 and 9, when you read chapters 8 and 9, they, they entirely have to do with this collection that he's trying to raise for the Jerusalem church. Go back and read those on your time this week, during your time this week. It's pretty fascinating. And then over in Romans 15, 25 to 28, he wrote this. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem. Now, you just keep in mind what we studied last week. His, he had a vision while he was in Ephesus to go to Jerusalem and then off to Rome and all that, and so that's what he's referring to. But he says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. And then he says, for if Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And so we can see that the the nature of this four-month journey to Corinth and, and Trous and wherever in between really had to do with encouraging these people to put together an offering and maybe even taking that with them. Because these Christians in Jerusalem were suffering tremendously, persecution and famine had caused widespread poverty amongst the brethren in Jerusalem. Uh, The church's resources were, were dwindling down, if not already depleted. You know, during the early years, all the believers' needs were met. We read about that a long time ago in Acts 4, but those days were long gone. Those resources had run out, or at least the church was doing what it could to raise resources for people who had needs, but they just could not keep up with the needs. In Galatians 2.10, we read that the apostles asked Paul, the apostles back at Jerusalem, asked Paul to remember the poor. Now, this happened sometime in between. He had an interaction with the apostles. It may have been all the way back during the ecumenical council meeting that took place several years before. But at some point, the apostles, the other apostles said, could you remember the poor as you travel about and plant churches? And here we see Paul honoring that request. He's collecting money from the churches he planted for the poor in Jerusalem. He's doing exactly as he was asked. Now, This also had to do with this collection, had to do with building unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. There was still such a rift between them, the Jews thinking that, Gentile believers had to obey all those laws and ordinances and things that they thought that they still had to obey, and the Gentiles thinking they're fanatical religious folks that are legalistic, and you know, and so there was this rift that that existed between them, not only just a kind of a spiritual rift there, but also a social one too. Jews thinking they're much better, Gentiles dogs, and this, these sorts of things, and so this offering from the Gentiles too the Jewish converts, the Jewish Christians, the Messianic Christians, if you will, in Jerusalem was meant to be an expression of love. We may be Gentiles. We may eat pulled pork and do things that you're not accustomed with, but we love you. And here is a way for us to express our love. They basically raised a monetary gift in an effort to soothe the tensions, showing that they cared. The Gentiles were, in effect, living out James one twenty two. We quote that so often here. They had been exhorted via the scriptures and their teachers and pastors to, to live out the faith by being generous. And they became, James one twenty two doers of the word when they took action and raised the funds. You see, it's one thing to listen to these sermons week in and week out, and to say, amen, brother, keep preaching, to talk about these things with your family. But when we don't live these things out and actually do them, we are deceiving ourselves that we are called to action, and whatever that action might be. And we see so clearly that these Gentile churches were being presented with an opportunity, and they were living it out. Doers of the word, not mere hearers. Another reason for Paul's visits to these churches during this time wasn't just to collect an offering for the Jerusalem Christians. It was to encourage them. We see that in our passage in verse 2. To encourage them. This is what he was doing in Macedonia, and this is what he did everywhere he went. This was, encouragement was one of Paul's trademarks. He not only planted churches, but went back and if he was able to do it, he would go back and encourage the new believers, the new leaders. Some translations use the word exhortation rather than encouragement, like the King James and the NASB. The Greek verb parakaleo is actually used here. And what it means is to urge. Encouragement exhortation right here in the Greek has to do with urging. When he encouraged, he was actually urging the people. He urged the believers and he used the scriptures to do this. This was a trademark of his. He encouraged and and exhorted the believers from God's word. And what Paul did here... And what he did throughout his entire ministry, career if you will, has become such a rare thing today. Exhortation, encouragement, urging via the scriptures is a very, very rare commodity in today's church. And I will tell you, there's a lot of encouragement, there's a lot of exhortation, there's a lot of urging that takes place, but not much coming from the word. A lot coming from pop psychology and, and, and these various philosophies and things of that nature or just personal opinion. MacArthur wrote, the greatest cause for the decline of biblical exhortation, we might just call that preaching, is the rise of a market-driven philosophy of ministry, attempting to be seeker-friendly seeker-sensitive, if you will. Churches have jettisoned preaching in favor of movies, drama, concerts, the testimonies of Christian superstars, and other forms of entertainment. And no wonder, since preaching the biblical truths of sin, judgment, and God's sovereignty in salvation is decidedly not seeker-friendly. And when ministers exchange... Exhortative preaching, proclamation of the word for pro, you know for these pragmatic sort of performance driven ways of, of communication and these things and building people up, the effects are absolutely devastating. Ephesians 4:12 to 13 warns us of five things that happen when we forsake exhortation of the word, for exhortation of something else. Number one, the saints are not equipped for the ministry. You see, part of biblical teaching and part of the church's purpose through biblical teaching is to build up the saints for the ministry of the gospel. And and, and the word is the tool that God uses to do that building up, to do that conforming to the image of Christ, to do that transformation. And when we do not exhort via the scripture, how are we building any believer up For the ministry of the gospel, we are not, in fact, building them up. The saints are not equipped for the ministry. And number two, that means the body of Christ is not built up into its most holy faith, into the service of the saints, into righteousness, into right living. Number three, true unity is not cultivated and not obtained. You wonder why there's so many divisions in the church today, and we tend to think, well, it's just all those doctrinal differences and things, and and don't get me wrong, those, those things definitely play a part, but the primary reason why there's so much division and disunity is because we've forsaken the word of God. Because the word of God, the exhortation of the word, changes us, makes us like Jesus. And if we're being made like Jesus, we become more and more like each other, like Jesus. And there's great unity in that. But if this church over here is teaching these things and they're not coming from the word, there might be a verse thrown out there, but then it's all about this, that, and the other. And then this church over here is exhorting via the scripture and people are being changed. You've got two sets of people that are claiming to be believers who are thinking different things, believing different things, and living out different things. And we call this whole thing the church. And how can there be unity? There isn't unity. It is the undermining. It is the forsaking. It is the jettisoning of the word of God that creates disunity. Number four, an imperfect knowledge of Christ is perpetuated. We call that ignorance. If we do not exhort in the scriptures, which are God's word, all about Christ, all about who he is, all about the gospel, if we're not proclaiming and exhorting via the scriptures, how are we getting to know Christ? Ignorance becomes rampant. We don't understand our Savior. We don't know him the way that we should. We don't know and understand what he's calling us to do or how he's calling us to live. We, we don't learn about his attributes or his ministry style or his way of loving people or his way of rebuking people. We don't learn any of these things and we remain in, because we're not being exhorted via the scriptures, ignorance of our own Savior. An imperfect knowledge of Christ is perpetuated ignorance of Jesus. He is The Word made flesh. To study the Word is to study Him. And fifth, spiritual immaturity. It is the Word of God that brings maturation, that brings maturity, that takes us from infancy to adulthood in a spiritual sense. Our minds are renewed. Our hearts are made new. We are changed. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. By what? Pop psychology and opinions and fancy things and pragmatism? No. By the exhortation of the scriptures. The scriptures alone have the ability to do these things. They alone are powerful. They are alone the tool that God uses. And when we abandon the scripture for everything else and for whatever the culture tells us to use we it just it's cataclysmic according to Ephesians 4:12 to 13 when you ponder the the wicked things that are done in the name of Jesus and don't we do that? We, we, we punt, we look at, we evaluate the truth. We look at our own lives, for one thing. We look at our church. We look at churches. We look at Christians. We look at Christians in Hollywood. We look at Christians everywhere. People saying they're Christians. And, and, and we wonder, why do they do these things that they do? Why do they support this? And why are they okay with abortion? And why are they okay? I don't understand this. Why are these things happening? Why? Why, 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 why? There it is. It's because of the way that they deal with the word. It's not authoritative to them. It's not sufficient It's not objective, it's not divinely inspired, whatever, whatever it is. Or we just believe there's better ways to do things in our church. It is the handling of the word that leads to all of our problems in the church, the way that we handle it. If we handle it right, we'll be blessed and most importantly, God will be glorified if we don't. And there is a final result of all of this in combination. If we take the abandonment, the we, we jettison exhortation and replace it with these other things, and it leads to all these things, spiritual maturity, all the things that I've listed. There is a final result that we can see in Ephesians 4.14. We become like children who are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in Deceitful scheming. I ask you, how important is the exhortation of the scriptures? Infinitely important. And we can see as we have studied Acts. And and we can see if we're willing to take the time to study the epistles that Paul was all about the word. He was all about exhorting from the scriptures, knowing the value, knowing what he's been called to do, knowing that it's his duty. Wherever he went, he urged via the scriptures, exhorted and encouraged. And I'm thrilled to say that that is precisely the burden that God has laid upon the elders of this church. That we would be like Paul, yeah, mostly like Christ, who was all about the word. Now, Paul decided to take a boat to Syria, but he had, a change of, he had to change his plans at the last moment here. He learned that the Jews plotted to assassinate him on the boat. They were going to make him walk the plank, if you will, he learned that the Jews had plotted to assassinate him while he would be on the boat. Now this would have been very easy to do because it was the boat was going to be packed like sardines with Jewish pilgrims who were headed to Syria and then to Jerusalem for the Passover. With all those Jews on board and these enemies of Paul could have easily thrown him overboard and I don't think anyone would have noticed But he heard about their plot and then decided to remain on land, right? Land's much safer for me at this point. And then to go back through Macedonia, taking the longer route. You see, he could have got to Jerusalem sooner if he just jumped on the boat. He probably would have been killed. He wouldn't have made it at all. But going back through Macedonia added time to his route. It added more days to his journey. His plans to get on the boat kind of fell through. He wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Passover with everyone else. But those plans were dashed to pieces. Be in Jerusalem, maybe, or die. (laughs) Now look at verses 4 through 6. Here's probably about seven names that I'm going to screw up big time. (laughs) Sopater, I have no idea if that's a, Sopater, his name is Sopater, it's just like potater. Sopater was from the south, no he wasn't. Yeah, Sopater, the Berean, son of, uh uh-huh, Perus, I don't know, Perus, how do you say it, does anyone know? Perus, Pyrus, Perus, Pyrus, like papyrus. Son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him and of the Thessalonians you have Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians. Uh, that's actually pronounced Tukicus, if you can believe that, not Tychicus, but tukikus And Trophimus. These guys, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Trous, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, that's Passover, and in five days we came to them at Trous, where we stayed for seven days. This is interesting. Luke lists seven co-workers that were traveling with Paul. MacArthur suggests, and I thought this was interesting, that they were representatives from the churches Paul planted who had basically come to deliver their church's collections for Jerusalem. I think that's an interesting perspective. It makes sense. Now let's look at each of these guys or at least identify them. From Macedonia, we have Sopater of Berea, we have Aristarchus of Thessalonica, and we have Secundus of Thessalonica. So those are the representatives, supposedly, of the churches of Macedonia. And then we have... Secondly, Galatia, those from Galatia. We have Gaius of Derby, and then we would have Timothy from Lystra. That's Paul's young protege and companion, the guy who's traveled with him on and off. Thirdly, we have them guys from Asia Minor. It actually calls them the Asians in there. I love that. You have Tuquicus, and you have Tromphimus. What Asian city would they have been from? The only one that we know of that he visited there, and that would have been Ephesus, It's interesting that he lists these guys. They may have very well been servants from these other churches or reps that were there to collect the offering. We also have Luke who, according to verse 5, he says we there, he had rejoined Paul as Paul passed through the Macedonian city of Philippi. And so now we might have a representative from the church at Philippi. I believe that might be the case here. He may have brought the Philippian offering. Think about this just for a second he had been there, Luke had been in Philippi for over three years, and so he might very well have been the rep there. So we have reps from Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, Lystra, Ephesus, probably Philippi, pretty much all those main and primary churches that Paul planted. But notice something here. There is no mention of Corinth or any representative from Corinth. This is bizarre. Corinth was a major city, probably one of the most major cities in the Roman Empire, and it had a major church in it. Paul had planted there. That church was blossoming, growing. But 2 Corinthians 8 seems to indicate that Corinth did have a representative there and that his name was Titus. You've heard of Titus? There's a letter addressed to him in his name. Paul first met Titus at his home church in Syrian Antioch way back. Titus accompanied Paul during his trip to Jerusalem for the ecumenical council meeting. He's one of the others that came with Paul, we see in Acts 15 too. Titus went on to become Paul's liaison to the church at Corinth. He traveled back and forth delivering Paul's letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Maybe 2nd Corinthians, we're not sure about 1st, but I think definitely 2nd Corinthians. And then he also stayed at Corinth for a period of time to help the church. He was sent there by Paul. And at this point in the narrative, in the storyline, it would appear that Titus had returned to Paul as the Corinthian representative to deliver their offering. And so pretty much all the main churches were represented and had representatives there. That's fantastic. Now the text also says that this goop, this group, this group dropped the R, the R silent there. The text also says that the group split up for five days. Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tuquicus, and Trophimus went to Trous while Sopater, Paul, Titus, and Luke remained in Philippi until after the Days of Unleavened Bread. That would be Passover. After the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, they sailed from Philippi's port, Neapolis, Across the Aegean Sea to Trous, where they met up with the others. That's what we see taking place here. And when they entered Trous, they joined with the others, and they stayed there for seven days. Now take a look at 8 through 12. Actually, 7 through 12. 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, they're in Trous together here, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps, yeah, I know, there were, we'll get to it, Aaron, just hold your horses. He's like, oh. this was the longest sermon ever. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, so don't judge me, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. (laughs) Uh, And then it says, and become, he had being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted." Now, The first thing to notice here about this set of verses is that the church gathered on a day other than the traditional Sabbath day, which was Saturday. It says they came together on the first day of the week, and that would be Sunday. Now, I love this verse because it refuses at least two wrong ideas that are even twirling about today. Number one, Sunday worship is an anomaly that developed during the second century. Seventh-day Adventists teach this and others that this whole idea of Sunday worship came about later in the second, maybe the third century, and it's an anomaly. It's not supposed to. It's not supposed to go on. It's a bad thing. It was a wrong thing that took place, and yet we see so clearly that they gathered on the first day of the week. Here, the early church did that, and so it refutes the idea that. Sunday worship is an anomaly. It's bad, and more particularly, that it's a later development. It is not. Verse 7 shows us that Sunday worship is not an anomaly, but rather acceptable and was practiced by the earliest Christians, including the Apostle Paul. I don't know how you get around that, but they do. Secondly, Christians are, this is the second error that comes about, and that it refutes Christians are required to observe the Sabbath and consequently worship on Saturdays. Saturday Sabbath, however, was given to Israel as a sign or as the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Since since Christians are under the New Covenant, they are not required to observe the sign associated with the Messianic, or not the Messianic, but the Mosaic Covenant. Romans 14.5 actually declares uh, that observing the Sabbath... Is, is, is to be really a matter of personal preference for converted Jews. If a Jew wants to worship that day and, and observe the Sabbath, then he can do that. It's fine. It's not law. It's a preferential thing. That it was to be tolerated until these Jewish believers became more mature in the understanding of their own Christian liberty. And the fact is, there is no command in the New Testament for Christians to observe the Sabbath. Not one. Taking this even further, Paul actually rebuked the Galatians for believing that they were required by God to observe special days, special months, special seasons, and special years. You can read about that in Galatians 4, 10 through 11. And so this verse... Refutes that. Now you take notice of, take notice of, you know, this whole idea of Sabbath worship on Sundays, observing the Sabbath and all that, this verse 7 refutes both lines of thinking. Now you take notice of the two things that took place during the Sunday gathering here in the text. They broke bread and Paul talked with them. The breaking of bread includes two things, eating a meal and communion. And or one or the other. But I believe, we look at Acts 2.42, that they did both. They celebrated communion and they enjoyed a meal together. And so we see that taking place here. And then talking with them, Paul talked with them throughout the evening, talking with them denotes Bible teaching and Bible or biblical conversation. And what was Paul doing? He urged these believers through the scriptures here. Talking with them means to urge, it means to exhort, it means to encourage, via the scriptures, just as he had done in Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia Minor. And then also, talking with them gives the sense that there was kind of a and a thing going here, and that is what happened. The people, as they listened to Paul, were able to ask questions, and, and Paul answered those questions as best he could. And this was Paul's last night in Trous, according to the text, and he planned to get up early the next morning to depart, but these questions kept coming. He was still going at midnight. You thought my sermons were long. There were many, it says in the text, also oil torches burning in the room. Why does Luke include that fascinating detail? To build a case for why a young man was sitting in a window, oil torches produce smoke and soot. And so the air quality in this room was probably horrendous. It would have been like walking into one of those old bingo halls with all those older folks in there. You know? Anyone been to a casino? Whew! You come in, it's like... Now I used to smoke, so I know what it's like. And I quit. But this would have been a smoky room. It would have been a, a room that would have been difficult to, to breathe in. It would have been stuffy. This is the Mediterranean region, which means it was probably hot, maybe humid. But these torches, there were all kinds of torches in there. And I, I love it, too, because it also tells us that these believers that were meeting up in this upper room weren't afraid to have their house lit up in the middle of the night talking about the things of God. This house probably looked like a little lighthouse, wherever it was, with all these oil lights and the light streaming through the windows onto other homes around it and onto the streets. And so the room was stuffy and hazy, and a young man who was there named Eutychus came up with a pretty good plan. I probably would have done the same thing, and his plan was to sit in an open windowsill where there was maybe some fresh air, maybe a cool breeze. Can't blame the guy. As he sat there listening to Paul go on and on and on and on, and he was probably thinking, for heaven's sake, stop asking him questions. Right? God supernaturally closed the scroll that he is holding so we can move on to the next thing. So I can go home and go to bed. And as he sat there and Paul went on and on and on and on, he eventually fell asleep and then fell into a deep sleep, you know, that... Good. What do we call that? What is that sleep that I, my wife never gets? Yes, that. I didn't hear them, but I know it has, yes. I love that deep sleep. He fell into this deep sleep, and what happened to him? He began to slide out the window. And he goes out the window, and he, he plummets three stories down, which is about 30 feet, to his death. He probably broke his neck. People have survived a 30-foot fall, but not when you land on your head. He Probably fell right out and went right down like that, like a lawn dart. Some of you don't know what that is. I'm getting older by the moment. Now, the sound of him going out the window and slapping the hard ground below obviously captured the attention of everyone in this upper room. Does somebody just go out the window? And they rushed down to him and they, and they, they oh my goodness, it's, it's Eutychus. And they checked his vitals. I, you know, Luke was there. He was a doctor. And, and they realized this dude's dead. He's dead. He fell. He broke his neck or whatever. He is dead. And they became alarmed, it says. The Greek word thorybeo is used here and it means to become disturbed or highly troubled which, of course, means that the women present had no doubt begun to weep and wail as was their custom. Soon as someone died, ah, people started freaking out. That was a cultural thing. Some of them started throwing dirt on their heads and put on, you know, sackcloth. And so people were freaking out, and the women were weeping and wailing. And oh, my goodness, how did this happen? He's dead. And they were freaking out and wigging out, and, and Paul knelt down over Eutychus, taking him in his arms, and he commanded the people who were freaking out to calm down. He said, and this is a command, do not be troubled. Why? Life is in him. Life is in him does not mean that he was barely alive and that they had mistaken him for dead, meaning he had a little trickle of a pulse. It means that life came back to him. That he was resuscitated, but I don't know about you. I didn't read anything about CPR or any electrical paddles or any procedure here. Do you see anything like that in the text? There's nothing like that here. Nobody's going, ah, oh, ah. Oh. That's not happening. There's no procedure or anything like that and if since there was nothing done to him physically to resuscitate him then how then was he brought back to life a miracle The same type of miracle that Jesus performed when he resuscitated the widow of Nain's son or Jairus' daughter or Lazarus. The same type of miracle that Peter performed when he resuscitated that woman with the dreadful name Dorcas. Tabitha. Now, this story is paralleled with what you heard read a little bit ago, 1 Kings 17, 19 to 22, as well as 2 Kings 4, 34 to 35. Both stories, you've got Elijah and Elisha, Elijah and Elisha, they had knelt down over boys who had died. And both boys were miraculously resuscitated. In the same way, Paul knelt over, he knelt down over Eutychus and life returned to him. What do you think was going through the minds of these people as this was taking place? This is like Elijah. This is like Elisha. It's the same thing that we read about in our historical records. Bear in mind that these were probably Gentile believers and knew nothing about these things. But if there was anyone Jewish there, there were some of his comrades they would have been thinking this is like Elijah. They wouldn't have thought that Paul was Elijah or Elisha, but they would have thought this is the same kind of miracle. Look, he's alive. Paul knelt down over him, sort of shrouded him. Maybe he was praying. I don't know, but life came back to him when he did this, just as it had happened with the Shunammite or Shulamite's son and these other person in the First Kings and Second Kings accounts. This is amazing. Do you know what Eutychus' name means? (laughs) Lucky one. (laughs) His parents, let's just call him Eutychus. We had no idea when he turned 12 he'd really be the lucky one. Lucky one was his name. Now interestingly, this is the last recorded miracle of Paul in the book of Acts. In fact, the book of Acts doesn't highlight a lot of Paul's miracles his teaching, his ministry movements and things, absolutely. Not a lot of miracles there. I think Paul did a lot more miracles than are listed. But this is the last one that is mentioned in Acts. And what was the purpose of this miracle? Think back to that first King 17 statement that that woman made when she saw her son resuscitated. I do believe that you are a man of God and that The word that you preach is his word and that it is true. Exact same meaning here. The purpose of the miracle was to affirm what Paul was preaching. That is the purpose of every miracle is to affirm the very word of God. And it also was to... Show that God has power over death. This is a major theme and feature in Christianity. Our Lord and Savior is a risen Lord and Savior, with the exception of that He's not resuscitated, just brought back to life. He is the only one who is resurrected, glorified body, way different than just being brought back to where you were before you died. We have a risen Savior. Jesus came out of his tomb, conquering sin, Satan, death, and hell. Paul may have even been speaking about that gospel component, the resurrection of the Lord at the time that Eutychus fell and died. How appropriate would it be to back up talk about the resurrection with a resuscitated person who's just basically been raised to life? That may have been what was playing out. God may have been seeking to provide a visual aid or live illustration to affirm Paul's preaching. After resuscitating Eutychus, they all returned upstairs and celebrated, woo by breaking bread and enjoying a meal together. And Paul continued to urge them, exhort, encourage them through the night until daybreak. Talk about long-winded. When he and his companions departed, Eutychus was there alive with the rest of the believers and they were all comforted greatly and then they left for their homes. They departed. What a story. Look at 13 through 16. But going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, For so, he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, or Assos, we took him on board and went to Midilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day, uh, opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus? Miletus? 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. The team went to the port of Trous to take a boat to Assos. Assos is a port city 20 miles southwest of Trous, it sits atop a 700-foot-tall volcanic hill, and it faced toward the island of Lesbos. Paul, however, did not board the boat. And, and let me tell you the reason why they were going to take a boat down just 20 miles south, is because it was so mountainous. You took land. It took a lot of time. It was dangerous. But Paul, however, did not board the boat with the rest of his team. He, he wanted to hike down to Assos by foot. And Like I said, this is interesting because the route was very mountainous, very treacherous. No reason is given for Paul's decision here to send them by boat and for him to go by foot. I suspect he may have wanted to remain in Trous a little longer, making sure that young Eutychus was okay or to continue to exhort them. Or maybe he wanted to walk that mountainous road down to Assos and, and, and he wanted to evangelize the folks who lived along the mountain. Road there? I, I, we don't know. But Paul did make the trek and he joined his companions who were waiting for him at the port of Assos. From there, they boarded a boat and sailed to several different islands. They sailed to Mitylene, the capital city of Lesbos. The following day, they, settled, they sailed uh, to Chios, the birthplace of Homer. And the day after that, they sailed to Samos. Samos was basically 30 miles south of Ephesus. And they actually deliberately sailed past Ephesus because Paul did not want to stop there for he was on a tight schedule. He wanted to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, which was fast approaching. It's 50 days after Passover. It was fast approaching here and he wanted to be there by then. And he knew that if he went into Ephesus, it wasn't that he thought he would get bogged down. He just knew that he would get consumed with ministry and and dealing with ministry. That's how ministry is. You know, I remember back in the day when I was working at Big Valley, you know, as a youth guy, I would not be at, on campus all day and, and then I realized, well, I've got to go down to the camp. I would avoid the campus like the plague at times and then I'd have to go down there but I would dread going there because I knew that as soon as I walked through the door, hey, 52 people called and you know, and it, that was it. Similar thing here. He was on a tight deadline. He wanted to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. If he went to Ephesus, He'd be busy there. This wasn't a mean thing by any means. He was just trying to be a good steward of his time. From the island of Samos, they sailed to Miletus. Miletus Miletus was just across a stretch of water there. Miletus was an important port city located at the tip of a peninsula, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, this particular place had four harbors. And before the Romans colonized it, the Greeks used Miletus as a staging and shipping center for the colonizing work they did in Egypt and along the Black Sea. According to Pliny the Elder, Miletus had founded more than 90 colonies. Those four harbors were sending out ships like you can't imagine going all through that region planting colonies, Greek colonies. They were Hellenizing that part of the world, if you will. When Paul arrived, uh, Miletus had a theater that could seat about 25,000 people. It had a massive agora shopping center, and it had a large Roman bathhouse. There are still ruins there today. It's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing place. Now, Paul came to Miletus for a specific reason. He had a purpose for his trip. Look at verse 17. And we know he went to Miletus because he didn't want to go to Ephesus, which was close by. And that's kind of one of his reasons. But 17 really shows us why. It says 17, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church, the Ephesian elders, if you will, to come to him. Miletus was to become the meeting place for Paul and the elders of the Ephesian church. Paul summoned the elders. Once he landed there, he summoned the elders to come to him. Somebody had to make a 20-mile, I think it was 15 miles by sea and 30 miles by land. Somebody had to make the trip back up to Ephesus, up north, to tell the elders, hey, Paul wants you to come down to my leaders. You need to come down. He wants to talk to you. At that point, I wonder if the elders were going, oh, man, what did we do? That's a staff meeting I've never wanted to go to. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't think they were thinking that. And what did the elders do? They went, they traveled that 60 miles by land is actually what it was, or 30 miles by sea. And when they arrived, oh man, how wonderful. When they arrived, Paul delivered one of the most incredible speeches ever given by anyone, anywhere. That's right, baby. His speech is prophetic. We see the words of his speech alive in the church today. Every elder at every Christian church should study this speech, should read this speech. It should be requisite for their office. We look at 2 Timothy and Titus, and that's where we get our marching orders as elders, and we miss this, and this is it. Every congregate, every Christian who attends a church, a member of a church, should study this speech that they might be brought to a deeper knowledge and understanding of what an elder is to be about. So many problems could be avoided if congregates read this speech and held their elders to this standard that's here. So much trouble could be avoided for the congregates that the elders just simply read this and studied it, believed it, and lived it. In this speech, we're not going to begin to look at it today because I want to move slowly through it. Lord willing, in the coming weeks we will do this. But in this speech, or we would say Paul's speech, includes three features, three key features. We'll begin to look at them next week. As I said, Lord willing, personal testimony, testifying from his own heart about his own actions, about his own life of faith, We're not talking opinion. We're talking experiential testimony. Secondly, exhortation. What Paul, one of his trademarks, I exhort you to do this and this and this and not do this. And then thirdly, warning. Massive warning. Be careful. As I said, Lord willing, we'll begin to look at it next Sunday. Closing. Are you finding it hard to believe that we just flew through 16 verses? (laughs) That's a miracle. Wow. Believe me as I say this, I have been in no hurry to get through this text. But so often we lose. What we're about to talk about, which is the point of this text, we lose that by dissecting it so finely, we lose the meaning of the whole text. And if you think about that right now, what, 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 what would be, what might we take away from this text? What might we take away from this message? All we've basically talked about is going to here and there and encouraging a few people and there's really nothing here, Phil. Yes, there is. There is a theme that runs right through verses 2 through 16, and I would say verse 1 through 16. We looked at one last week. There is a theme that runs right through it it all, and it is encouragement. From Corinth to Miletus, Paul encouraged the believers through exhortation. Through urging. Right? Everywhere he went. But Luke doesn't tell us what he said to them. Does he? He doesn't give us Paul's words. He doesn't say, Paul exhorted them, urged them, encouraged them, this, 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 this. He doesn't say that. He just says they were encouraged. There is no explanation given. Paul's words are not recorded here. Why? Because Luke is the master of summary. He's already told us through 19 chapters, not 19, since since chapter eight. So how many chapters is that? 11 or chapter six? I don't know when Paul came on the scene. I think it was eight. I don't know. Don't quote me on it. But from the moment that Paul began ministry he had been encouraging and saying the same things over and over. See all of those chapters show us how he encouraged and all Luke's doing is summarizing. Luke loved to summarize. We might say that he has already shown us how Paul encouraged believers in previous chapters. He just summarized here is all. And so what would it be? What did he say? How did he encourage them from previous chapters? No, I'm not going to take you back through all those expositions and that. I've just summarized them myself. But there are a couple of different ways, three ways actually, that he encouraged people. If you go back and read for yourself, go back and listen to the 88 sermons. I dare you. You'll fall out a window and die. How did he do it from previous chapters? Number one, he encouraged them to continue in the faith. Keep going. I know it's hard. I know you have flesh. I know you're tempted. I know the world says you're an idiot, you're a moron, and you should believe what we tell you. And Paul would often say in different va- ways in various forms, stay in the faith from beginning to end. And you might be thinking, why would I need to deliberately do something about staying in my faith when it says I can never lose my faith? I can never..." Do-. You need to partake in this thing. You can't ever lose salvation. You can't ever lose the saving gift that God bestowed upon you. But you must be proactive in your face. You must work and you must strive and you must work hard. That's our part of sanctification. It's a synergistic thing. He saved you and gave you the ability to do something about your faith and you do that through reading and study and prayer and fellowship and these things and the whole dang world is against us. And we don't have it as bad as they had it then. Enemies everywhere. As Paul planted, he would go back and say, are you in the faith still? He wept over the idea of people walking away from the faith. It destroyed him at times emotionally. He couldn't fathom this idea that people would be so attacked by the enemy and false teachers and these things and just, "Ah, that's it, I'm just going back to... I mean, it just drove him nuts. And so he constantly encouraged them to continue in the faith. He encouraged them, secondly, to endure persecution. You think of that fantastic scripture that says, it is through many trials that we enter the kingdom of God. Nobody gets there without scrapes and bruises and broken bones and heartache and tragedy. It's not just as some of those Pentecostals would have you believe. I just keep going and I just keep getting all this great stuff and it's just a wonderful thing. Are you kidding me? It is hell at times. They hated and murdered and crucified and tried to destroy our Lord. Why should we expect anything less for us? The Christian faith is hard. Persecution is everywhere. If we're not being persecuted by outside forces, by the demonic realm, and by, you know, unbelieving people, we're being persecuted by our stupid flesh. Paul Encourage them to continue in the faith. This is what he did. Look at Acts. Look at his epistles. And he encouraged them to endure persecution. Don't give up. I know it's hard. I know everyone's against you. I know everyone's opposed to you. I know even your own family members are opposed to you. Don't give up. Endure the persecution. The prize is too great. And thirdly, he encouraged them to stand To take a stand, a concrete stand. Sorry about that down below. Just realized there's kids down there going. "Ah." (laughs) To take a concrete stand against false teachers. Don't be deceived by those ravenous wolves. Don't listen to those Judaizers. Expel them from your church. Continue in the faith. Endure persecution. Stand together, arm in arm, in the love of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit by the might of his word against false teachers. Expose them. Expel them. Drive them from you. Do not listen to them. Do not follow them. He said these same things. We don't have it recorded, Luke summarized, but he had to have said the same things in chapter 20 when he went to this church and this church and this church and this church. Those three things. But he was, however, collecting an offering for the Jerusalem church during this time which means that he would have added another encouragement. Be generous and give to your impoverished brothers and sisters at Jerusalem. That would have been his fourth encouragement. And here's the point. The same encouragements are for us. It wasn't just a, for all these Christians in these different places, Trous and Corinth or wherever, these same encouragements are for us. God's word. And God inspired Paul to record these things and to write these things. It's God's word. God said these things through Paul. But they're fresh for us now. That we might be encouraged to continue in the faith no matter that we might be encouraged to endure the persecution that you are experiencing, whether it be at work, at home, in your neighborhood, amongst your friends, at your school, wherever it is, that we would be encouraged to stand against false teachers. We are surrounded by them. They're everywhere with their lures trying to pull us, from sound doctrine, trying to pull us from the unity that we have here, trying to suck us out to destroy us. They're on our TVs, they're in print media, they're in some of the churches in this community. Stand on the truth against them. May we be encouraged to continue in the faith to endure persecution and to stand against false teachers and to be generous with our time, talent, and treasure. Amen. Lord, as we enter into this time of the Lord's Supper, we, we ask that you would reveal our sin to us, Lord, that we would have a time of repentance and confession, that we would have a time of maybe reflecting upon what we've heard. Maybe there are areas that, that, you know, we we need need to be pulled from. It's not just an encouragement thing that we're actually living in blatant sin and our encouragement is to step away from those things. I mean, I, I don't know. We all sin. But may this just preliminary time, the time that we have before we take the elements. May we reflect upon what we've heard. May we reflect upon our own lives. Jesus, please reveal our sin to us that we might be able to confess it and repent of it. Encourage us through the scriptures today, Lord, to remain in the faith, to endure persecution, to stand against false teachers, to love one another, to be generous. We have a small church with many needs. May you compel us to be generous. May we remember what the elements represent, your spilt blood, your broken body for the remission of our sin, that you would save us and bring us into a new covenant, not under Sabbath law or any of those things, but under the law of Christ, the royal law. Love God, exalt him above all things and love others as we love ourselves. All of the law and prophets hang upon those things. May they be so for us. May we remember what Christ did for us. May we be refreshed by his grace. And may we commit ourselves to obeying the scriptures. Just as those believers did in the early days of the church. James 1.22 Be not mere hearers, but doers. May we do that in every area of our lives. May every area of our life be pleasing to you, surrendered to your lordship, trusting you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Stuff's right on the sides.